This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Johanna Drucker about her book titled Inventing the Alphabet, the Origins of Letters from Antiquity to the Present, just out from the University of Chicago Press. This book provides the first real account in wonderful depth and breadth of two and a half millennia of scholarship on the alphabet. This draws on so many different things and is absolutely fascinating. So I'm really excited to welcome you, Johanna, to the podcast. Thank you. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Um, my name's Johanna Drucker. I, uh, I teach in a department of information studies here at UCLA, and I teach topics related to the history of the book, uh, uh, information visualization, digital humanities, and all sorts of things that have to do with literacy technologies. Um, but my own formation really was as a writer and a letterpress printer and a visual artist. And my interest in writing as a visual form uh, came early in my own writing practice. And I decided after many years of working as a letterpress printer and as a book artist and poet that I wanted to pursue a degree, a, a doctoral degree, and to look at the history of writing. And I had the great good fortune to go to the University of California at Berkeley. And it was in my very first um, semester at UC Berkeley when I had the privilege of access to the stacks in the Doe Library that I was able to come across remarkable works, 17th and 18th century publications as well as more modern ones that had not been yet culled from the open stacks. And um, I you know, my my founding myth of this book is that I pulled the, you know, um, uh, Francis von Helmont's, Helmont's um, uh, you know, Alphabeti Veri Nature off the shelf. And it was this 17th century book bound in vellum. And uh, von Helmont had been interested in trying to demonstrate that the alphabet had a natural origin, meaning the origin was rooted in the physiology of the um, human uh, articulatory organs. And he had diagrams to show this and to show their relationship to Paleo-Hebrew, um, Chaldean, and other, um, you know, sort of quasi-mythic alphabetic forms. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. I had no idea what I was looking at. I didn't know what Chaldean letters were. 
And from that moment on, and that was 40 some years ago, I became absorbed in the way in which knowledge about the alphabet had been produced and transmitted. And in particular, knowledge about the origins of the alphabet. And that's really the focus of this project is to look at the intellectual traditions and there are several, within which study of the origins of the alphabet have been debated, transmitted, and continue to develop um, according to uh, all kinds of discoveries. Um, We'll talk more about that, but um, one of the issues is really what are the technologies of knowledge transmission and knowledge production, and how do those influence the way we can understand an object of study as complex and as historically, you know, sort of persistent as the alphabet. So, so that's a long answer to your short question, <laughs> but a very good one, um, a very helpful one. And um, I'd love to explore some of those pieces um, that you talk about in the book through the interview. Obviously, we're not going to be able to go into all of them, so I will definitely point listeners to the book in its entirety for all of the details and. Um, stories and all sorts of things that I certainly found really surprising and intriguing um, because we'll probably be only able to cover some of them now. Um, But I'd like to start with, in some senses, the big ticket item. Um, And I'm really glad that you talked about this in your book because when I told um, some of my friends that I was getting the opportunity to interview you, um, this was in fact their very first question without even thinking about it. Um, I said, I'm I'm interviewing someone about alphabet studies. It's going to be really cool about how the alphabet, how we know about the alphabet, how it's been studied. And their very first question was, oh, you mean the Greek alphabet? And I was very pleased, therefore, to open up the book and see that you have had a whole discussion and explanation about this idea. So I'm wondering if you can explain for us when and why did the alphabet somehow become Greek? Exactly. Well, this is one of the great misperceptions about um, the alphabet in the West is that its origins are in ancient Greece. Now, um, you know, Greece was part of a a vast Mediterranean network, um, and uh, there had been literacy in Greece in the Mycenaean period, um, but that had, you know, vanished and had been gone for several hundred years when the Greeks came into contact with traders who had come from the East. And the earliest uh, text that we have, and again, it's a text which has some implications in terms of, you know, techniques of scholarship, but the earliest text that we have that records this um, history of the Greeks acquiring an already existing alphabet is in Herodotus's histories and, you know, dated to about 440 BCE. Now, Herodotus knew full well that the Greeks had not invented the alphabet. They had received it as, quote, a gift from Cadmus, and Cadmus means, you know, person from the east. Now, that east is the coast of the Levant, and that's where the Phoenician traders set out. And the Phoenicians were Semitic speakers, as were many of the sort of, you know, cultural groups throughout, um, you know, the Levant, 
Canaan, um, further east into Chaldea, um, the whole sort of area um, of the Fertile Crescent is Semitic, uh, populated by persons who spoke Semitic languages. Uh, Sumerian's very ancient. We don't even know what language that was. Um, but they're all part of this Afro-Asiatic group. Well, that phrase in itself, Afro-Asiatic, um, has all kinds of political ramifications because you recognize that that crescent there stretches um, from you know modern-day Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, through into northern Egypt, um, across the Sinai into northern Egypt. And the Egyptians spoke a a language that's related, but it's not Semitic. So the Phoenicians had, in fact, consolidated um, the um, alphabetic symbols that had uh, already been systematized in um, a sort of north and west, um, what's called, you know, western uh, Semitic um, and northern Semitic um, epigraphy and, and alphabet symbol Uh, sets. And they had spread it. And by the time the Phoenicians were spreading the alphabet, which sometime after 1000 BCE, it was already, you know, sort of distilled and elegant and beautifully formed. So what the Greeks receive is a set of signs produced by Semitic speakers appropriate to Semitic languages that then the Greeks adapted for their own purposes. And in that adaptation, which we think happened sometime between 800 and 600 BCE, the Greeks added explicit vocalic notation because they spoke an Indo- European language that had too much ambiguity if it were only noted by consonants um, to really be, you know, to be functional. So from the 1718 set symbol that they inherited from the Phoenicians, they expanded to 22 letters. And again, Herodotus is very explicit. He says exactly what those letters are and why they got added and what their sources are. So the Greeks knew that the alphabet wasn't Greek. So why do we think of, the, of our alphabet as Greek? Well, the letter forms that we use, which really come out of both Italian, you know, Latin, Italian, you know, Etruscan sources and uh, Greek sources, as well as the Semitic sources, um, those letter forms um, appear to us to be part of a, you know, modern, a, you know, a, a, a classical uh, tradition. Um, but the Classical tradition, as it comes forward into modern scholarship, is practiced by a group of people, Melman Perry being chief among them from the 1930s, a a figure who started to investigate the relationship between written and oral language that he perceived in Homeric verse, um, and then figures who built on this, like Eric Havelock and others, um, had an idea that the Greeks were the sort of source of modern European democracy, rationalism, uh, humanism, various kinds of traditions. And so there's a politics to the way in which they divorce the alphabet from its Semitic past and make it exclusively Greek. Um, and also make a claim for the superiority, and they do it explicitly in those terms, the superiority of the Greek mind, Greek culture, and Greek writing to anything that had preceded. Well, 
you know, that is clearly a racist agenda. It gets rid of, you know, Assyria, Acadia, Babylonia, Egypt. Um, they don't know about, you know, I mean, and the, the, that's just in the Far East, I mean, the Near East, let alone the Far East. So there's a kind of erasure of that Semitic past. And um, the politics of that uh, remain in place, um, even though many of the figures who are building the sort of concrete evidence for our understanding of the origins and dissemination of the alphabet have mounted considerable material um, in contradiction to this. And uh, the breakthrough moment, uh, there, there are people who write about this, but really a breakthrough moment is in the controversial work of a figure named Martin Bernal. And Bernal had written a book called Black Athena um, that was published uh, originally in 1987, The Afro-Asiatic Roots of European Culture. And it was so controversial, just you can imagine. Um, And uh, in 1990, he published Cadmian Letters. And Cadmian Letters tracked in great detail the way in which the um, appropriation of classicists of a particular attitude had transformed um, this historical um, information into a into a, a new mythology um, about Greece. So again, um, that that it's a relatively modern notion. Again, long answer to your short question, <laughs> but really important um, because we do, in a lot of senses, I think people kind of take it for granted um, and don't look into it. Um, and in fact, I think one of the most intriguing things about that answer is about how recent the changes. Um, and again, to point to more detail in the book, you have a whole discussion about what the ancient Greek writers said about the alphabet. Um, And it's not like the more modern writers were just reading their stuff and going, oh yeah, what they said. Um, (laughs) That's in fact very much not what they're doing. Yeah, no, exactly. The Greeks themselves had no illusions um, about um, their autonomy. They saw themselves as part of a, a large cultural, you know, milieu, a region. And, you know, Plato assigned the origin of the alphabet to to the Egyptians. I mean, the, the debates there are so interesting. Um, and, you know, then when we get into, you know, the sort of Semitic, you know, the rabbinic traditions and the whole stories of Moses, um, you know, it's like, oh, you know, there's a whole other mythology that's there. Um, so, yeah, it's a relatively recent um, construction of history to project um, the origin of the alphabet into Greece and to assert a kind of superiority for the Greek alphabet because of its explicit vocalic notation. And that persists into the present. Clearly. Um, and so I'm really glad that you're part of the movement to correct that for us. Um And I'd love to kind of stay on this idea of understanding the influences on the alphabet, um, again, to kind of deconstruct this myth that there is only one source and it is the Greeks. Um, You've mentioned, obviously, the Semitic roots of this. You've just mentioned Moses. Uh, So I'm going to use that as my segue to ask about how Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, has influenced alphabet studies. Sure. Well, Kabbalah, as we know, is a late formation. It's not an early formation. Um, you know, again, if you go to the, uh, what I call the silver and gold websites, they will, you know, make the Kabbalah into the, you know, oldest, you know, sort of um, mystical tradition on earth. But in fact, Kabbalah is an invention of about the sort of 12th and 13th centuries in Mozarabic Spain. And it's a mystical tradition. It's a, it's a, it's a mystical practice. Um, 
And within Kabbalah, there's a, you know, um, a, a, a belief in the divine origin of the letters. And, you know, that there are many, many writers who will persist in various versions of this well into the 20th century, because, in fact, the alphabet is so amazing in what it is that m- many writers had difficulty even imagining that it was within the capability of human beings to invent such a thing. And, you know, as I said, we now know um, the basic outlines of the history of the alphabet. It emerged, you know, sometime around, you know, 1600 to 1400 BCE in a cultural exchange between cultures to the Far East and North Africa, somewhere between the Sinai, Egypt, Egypt, and Canaan. So exactly where, how is complex. Um, But the point is there is a single origin. It's a proto-Canaanite taproot. And it gives rise to all of the alphabetic scripts in use today. And this is the other area of, of confusion that many people have. They say, well, which alphabet? Um, you don't mean like Arabic, right? And it's like, yes, every alphabetic script in use today was derived from the same uh, taproot and then modified um, either with new characters um, for the language to which it was um, appropriated or with, um, you know, modifications of the script. So Arabic, Berber, Tamil, all of the, you know, uh, all of the Southeast Asian scripts, right? Uh, You know, runes, agam, all these things are related to the alphabetic taproot. But what the Kabbalah brought into this, um, uh, you know, sort of history was a projection of value onto the forms of the letters and a mythology about their identities in relation to creation. So the concept of creation of the of, of the world coming into being um, as God creates the letters becomes part of Kabbalistic lore. Mm, very interesting. Um, I, I can I can kind of see their point. It's very cool. How could this be created? But also, hmm. Hmm. I'm always I'm always curious about when you get a lot of people together and what they come up with, and then how does that stand the test of time? Um, well, Kabbalah has a lot of potency, and um, again, because its mystical dimensions help to explain what is, I think, for many cultures outside of human comprehension, which is creation. You know, I mean, it's, you know, how does the world come into being? Um, and one of the wonderful aspects of Kabbalah is the kind of um, addition of the, what are called the the, the ring letters or the Brillin Buchstaben, as the scholar Gideon Bohak um, says. And these are letters that look like Hebrew letters, but at the ends of their arms, all right, are, are rings, open ringlets. And the reason those are there is because they are meant to show that the letters are derived from constellations in the sky. And again, if the alphabet is derived from stars in the sky, then it is a direct transcription of divine creation. Cool. Definitely one of the things that I was glad that... um, you were able to work with the publishers to do in the book is to have all sorts of images and uh, represent, you know, different ways that people have represented the alphabet over time um, documented in the book. And in fact, I'd love to kind of continue our chronological journey through those different ways it was thought about um, and obviously making a massive jump from Kabbalah now to the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, But why was this such a key thing. You, you talk about in this time period, compendia being a really big deal. 
Um, what were they in this in this context, and why were they such a big deal at this particular moment? Yeah, it's an incredibly profound and, and far-reaching question because what we're really looking at here is the transformation of medieval knowledge production into Renaissance and modern knowledge production. And, you know, the printing press has, you know, an, an, a role to play here. And the dissemination of information about the alphabet in the Middle Ages was largely through textual copying and graphical copying. So we do see exemplars of mystical alphabets, magical alphabets, even, you know, um, alphabets that were invented, you know, supposedly found on voyages to the Far East and so forth. We see them stabilized as graphical exemplars, copied and transmitted but there's no bibliographical references that are stable. So, you know, something might cite, you know, um, Flavius Josephus or might cite Herodotus, but there isn't, you know, a kind of stable edition of those works that can be referenced. And when we get into the um, era of print, editions and bibliographical stability start to offer a very different way of doing scholarship so that even though in the compendia of, you know, one of the earliest compendias, the 15, uh, 15 I think it's 15, 15, 15, 18, sorry, polygraphia um, of Johannes Trithemius. Now, Trithemius is, you know, a kind of a typical scholar of the period in the sense that, you know, he's a religious man, he's the abbey of the, you know, he's head of the abbey at Sponheim, he builds the library there, he writes a very famous essay, um, you know, in praise of scribes as if he's against printing, but meanwhile he builds this incredible library with printed volumes as well as manuscript volumes. And, you know, one of the things that's so important about the compendia, because the, uh, the compendia I'm talking about are all printed volumes, and there's none in the incunabula period that I've been able to locate. So these are all early 16th century, nothing 15th century. But the compendia um, of someone like Trithemius gather materials from manuscripts and turn them into um, the exemplars get turned into woodblocks and the references get turned into, you know, print. Um, you know, statements that then have their own editorial stability. Trithemius becomes a source for, you know, um, scholars going forward for several hundred years, um, really uh, up until about the 19th century when, again, these traditions split people like Trithemius and Agrippa and, um, you know, um, uh, Postel, Pantheus, they're seen as antiquarian and not reliable, not authentic. Um, But uh, the st- you know the stabilization of these references in the work of um, Trithemius becomes a major reference point for scholars going forward. So that's a complete transformation um, and uh, in terms of technologies of knowledge production. But the other thing that's going on here is conceptual intellectual transformation, which is the desire for a kind of encyclopedic understanding of history and of the globe. And, you know, we can see how that is related to colonial explorations, to, you know, global, um, you know, sort of range of uh, European travel. And so this idea that to understand, you know, where the alphabet came from, to understand its origins, one needs to look at this, you know, huge 
um, you know, global history and have control, you know, be able to gather it all together becomes, you know, what I call the encyclopedic impulse um, of the period. And so we see it in many, many works. I mean, Trithemius' 1515 polygraphy is fascinating and interesting. But, um, you know, the work that kind of blows my mind is uh, Claude Duret's, you know, uh, early um, 17th century volume, which is over a thousand pages long. It's called the, the, the Treasure of the History of Languages of This Universe. It's in, it's in modern, but, you know, Renaissance French. It's set in six-point type, which, remember, seven-point type would have all been hand-set letter by letter. And it's filled with woodblocks that replicate these angelic alphabets as well as, you know, actual scripts in use. And the scholarship, and it's just unbelievable. Like, what library did Duray have access to to be able to, you know, put this kind of a compendium together? And it's it's it, it just I'm so boggled by the you know erudition of Duray and his capacities. And I mean, this is a serious scholar. He's not making things up. Um, you know, he's really accurately gathering and recording um, this uh, vast bibliographical reference about the history of languages. And then that enables everyone after to actually be able to make use of it. And um, I think that that's a really important piece of it as well that you highlight, that it's not just about his individual work, but then kind of what that opens up Um and how it's really hard to do a lot of this if someone hadn't done something like that. Um, but now I do wonder, I, I mean, is there some sort of, there must be some sort of fellowship grant or something of like hunt through the libraries of Europe to see which one was his. Um, <laughs> you know, yes, I, I'm, I'm sure there's a, there, there's a way to track what, what Dure, what Dure's sources were. Um, and, you know, it's like with Trithemius, he gathered the sources, you know, he, he bought these things. Um, there were libraries like the Grimani Library, which have vanished because they were, um, you know, donated, sold, dispersed. And also the monks became, and the, you know, the, the religious, the members of the religious orders became increasingly uncomfortable with anything that looked like magic or angelic or mystical um, writings. And so they destroyed a lot of medieval manuscripts that had these materials in them. Um, but nonetheless, when um, the librarian of the Vatican, James Bonaventure Hepburn, puts together his incredible, you know, plate of 72 scripts, um, you know, which is a huge engraving, and he's culling these from the Vatican Library, he includes things like, um, you know, the, the alphabet that was, you know, given to Moses, the alphabet that is supposedly affiliated with the angel Raphael, the alphabet that was supposedly used by Noah. So he's got sources that he's using, um, which, you know, Angelo Rocca, another uh, figure who was part of the Vatican, um, you know, intellectual circle, had also put together in a bibliography. So again, these people knew that tradition and were able to borrow on it. What was hard for me was finding those things, you know, because it's like, you know, you'd have Dure, D-U-R-E-T, and then it's like, that's your source. Okay, go find it, you know? <laughs> Dr. Morton. Okay, who was Dr. Morton? Do you know how many Drs. Morton there have been in the history of English letters? Right. So... That's why it took me 40 years. So. Sure. Well, that's uh, not that that's a very significant effort um, and definitely worth highlighting exactly how these things that seem like small details uh, are really not <laughs> are really quite a big deal. 
Um, so I'd love to ask about kind of another aspect of influence here, um, specifically the diplomatics and how this kind of, how does this add to our story so far? Sure. Well, diplomatics is a term that refers to um, the study of documents and underpins modern um, archival studies. And the the phrase first appears in the title of Jean Mabillon's Dure Diplomatica, of diplomatic things. And um, uh, Mabillon is a a Benedictine, and he's um, involved with trying to authenticate documents that are church records of property, because there are some disputes, believe it or not, about who owns what. And the disputes are with the Jesuits. And so one of the things that Mabillon is interested in is coming up with, and he does this, it's again remarkable, a systematic set of empirical criteria for determining whether a document is authentic or not. So, okay, beginning of the 17th century, empiricism, rationalism, um, he does, he sets up a, a, a set of, um, you know, method, methodological procedures. Let's look at the writing. Let's look at the seals. Let's look at the paper. Let's look at this. Let's look at that. And, um, and by doing this, he establishes the foundation for um, not only um, uh, archival studies, but also to some extent for paleography. And he's also interested in the history of scripts. And if you're interested in history of scripts and letter forms, that pretty soon, you know, leads you back into the history of um, of writing and its origins. And then Mabillon's work is very influential on a Frenchman named Charles Tustin, who, who takes up diplomatics. Um, and then also this other wonderful figure, Thomas Astall. And Astall is an early 18th century figure who was um, the keeper of the records of the Tower of London. And Astall, again, picks up on Mabillon's work and Tustin's, um, puts it into English, and sets up another whole updated set of methodological principles for authentication. But Astall's interests are really historical, and his book title, it's something like The um, the Origin and Progress of Writing. Um, and so the notion of origin combined with progress is a modern notion, right? We suddenly got the idea that things progress across history, that there's an evolution. That's very different from the compendium makers. The compendium makers see things as part of a historical past, but they're not necessarily thinking in terms of progress. Whereas Astle, early 18th century, it's like origin and progress. And that's a very different historical conception. So diplomatics is interesting for the way in which it um, builds a method that relies upon historical knowledge. And that historical knowledge starts to have a kind of linearity and a, and a, you know, a duration to it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hmm. And I think then that it's worth mentioning the other kind of um, development that allows this idea of linear progress to literally be seen, um, which is the use of tables in alphabet studies. 
um, which again, sounds like such a small thing, but is a massive change to how alphabets had been disseminated, recorded, discussed, etc. Um, so that that may seem obvious, but there's actually a lot more to it that I'm wondering if you can help us understand kind of how big a deal this was. Sure. Yeah. The notion of the table is so fascinating. I mean, again, grid forms for organizing knowledge um, go back into Babylonian times. Um, and, you know, we see this in the clay tablets where, you know, for doing geometry, for instance, there's a kind of typology of columns, you know, this is this kind of thing, that kind of thing, and so forth, or, or lists of um, goods that are being stored. And again, you know, a kind of um, knowledge organization that's uh, graphically inscribed. But these, um, you know, Renaissance uh, writers who are, you know, sort of um, pulling, uh, you know, sort of from every kind of source to put together some kind of overview of the origin and develop of le- develop origin and development of letters, start to see the benefit of this graphical form, which is the table. Think of Athanasius Kirchart, right? And he has this beautiful table in the um, book about the about Babel, Tower of Babel. So Babel is, of course, one of those um, areas of debate that also informs uh, both the compendium makers and the table makers. It's like, what was the original language? And what were the original letter forms? And what was really given by God? And what was on the Decalogue and where did that come from? So these are pressing issues for scholars of you know of the Renaissance and really up through the 18th century. And so the tables allow a scholar to pull examples out of historical evidence. Now, what the historical evidence at the, is at that particular point, 17th and 18th century, is pretty much manuscripts and published sources, right? And some antiquities. I mean, there's there's lots of Roman antiquities. There's lots of Greek antiquities. There are almost no Semitic antiquities. There's very little evidence except for coins. And the coins are fairly late, um, you know, by com- by comparison, in other words, we, we don't have, there are no coins from 1700 BCE, right, or 1400 BCE. Um, and so the coins are like third, fourth century, you know, BCE, second century. So there's not a lot of physical evidence. But to track, um, you know, the, the letter forms, because they're really doing this graphically, um, into their earliest, um, you know, iteration, uh, these scholars create tables. So they'll go, okay, this is, you know, Samaritan, this is, you know, Paleo-Hebrew, this is Noah's alphabet, this is Arabic, this is, and they'll line them up. And so there are two ways the tables perform what I call their rhetorical work. One is comparison. Okay, these are all meant to be meant to be the same type of thing. And that's a big assumption. Okay, but that's there in the table because you got a row and a column and it says if it's in this row, it's this kind of thing. And if it's in that column, it's that kind of, you know, thing of that thing. So it's a knowledge organization system, but it also allows um, progress to be shown. So you could show the earliest to the latest um, so that you begin to see how uh, script forms transform over time. And so those two things, comparison and progress, are able to be visualized, but at the expense of removing those glyphs, those signs, those letters from context. You don't know how big they are. 
You don't know if they were what material they were inscribed in. You don't know if it's a copy of something on a stone, on on a coin, in a manuscript, made by a pen, a brush, a chisel. So there's a lot of stripping away of information that's absolutely essential when we get to archaeology and epigraphy, um, but that you know it's just lost at that moment as these uh, tables are produced. But the tables are incredible and they're really really beautiful i mean some of these things some of these things are like four feet by five feet with you know a million you know sort of different script forms in them and oh you know and they get absorbed and reused and passed on um so they're quite remarkable they're pretty stunning even in like small form reproduced in a book they're pretty cool um i can only imagine what the like mass original versions um, look And they like. get used into the present. I mean, a scholar like Benjamin Sass, who is a consummate, you know, a Semitic epigrapher, um, went through every existing instance of every sign or glyph from evidence of the early alphabet and put it into tables. And, um, you know, again, we don't have that many objects, maybe several hundred, um, but to take every single glyph and date it and link it to an artifact and put it into a table so that it can be, you know, studied, uh, it's pretty impressive. Yep, definitely impressive. And then that they're also pretty to look at a lot of them. Um, So lots of different kinds of skill going on. but I kind of want to link this up now with uh, what you've just mentioned of modern archaeology, um, because the tables are gorgeous and really helpful in a lot of senses, but have some downsides. So how has modern archaeology kind of impacted alphabet studies, shifted sort of what types of evidence are considered or not, or how they're considered in relation to each other? Um, what does modern archaeology bring to this? Yeah, archaeology is so important because it locates evidence in relation to place. And and that is so fundamental for understanding origins and development. So where did changes in scripts take place? Under what circumstances, using what materials, and you know, how do we date these materials? So, you know, the dating of inscriptions is quite complex because you have a substrate, you have a stone or, you know, a piece of pottery, you can date that. And if you have an inscription on it, you still got to figure out if the inscription is the same date as the substrate. But then you also have stratification, um, the layering of historical evidence in archaeological sites. But that's often been disturbed or had, you know, various kinds of, you know, uh, changes um, because of either weathering and time or looting and, you know, disturbance. So, so the, the archaeology is important because it locates the evidence. So we can go, oh, if you find this thing here, then that tells you something about where it um, may or may not have been produced. And I'm qualifying it because it's not always clear. But some of the first archaeological discoveries were so sensational that they caused kind of international, you know, um, uh, interest. And one, you know, but we had no physical evidence of the of of biblical history so this was a huge conundrum right for 18th century scholars and even early 19th century scholars you know we have the remnants of ancient greece and ancient rome as i said before and egypt of course but 
you know, the palace at Nineveh only got discovered and unearthed from the sands by, you know, Henry Layard, right? It's like, and the Semites did not build monuments. You know, they were nomadic, you know, tent-based, you know, tribes. So there were no giant, you know, arches or palaces. So all of these inscriptions were on ephemeral material and sometimes, and this is where they start to get discovered, on rocks. So, you know, the earliest observations of the Sinai um, inscriptions, you know, they, they go back quite a ways, but, you know, it's like nobody really recognized them for what they were until Hilda Petri, wife of Flinders, Petri, the great Egyptologist noticed them when they were camping on their way between Egypt and um, uh, what was then called Palestine. And she saw these rock inscriptions and said, well, what is this? And of course, the notion of the Sinai, these had been noted before, was that this must be, you know, inscriptions that were left by the Jews as they left Israel and traveled through the Sinai. So, you know, but this raised all kinds of questions. Um, and, um, and, And there's some evidence that, in fact, that happened around 1400 BCE, and that's about how old these inscriptions are, and that that's about the right time for the, you know, real Moses who may have been behind the biblical Moses and so forth. But the, you know, so the Sinai inscriptions were there and they were known, but nobody could date them and they're very kind of scratchy. But it was discoveries on on the Phoenician coast. Now, Phoenicia is an anachronistic term. That's not how the Phoenicians referred to themselves. They self-identified according to their cities, Tyre and Byblos and Sidon. Um, But the discovery of this incredible um, Sidon inscription by a Frenchman in about 1855 was just radical, revolutionary. Now, it's not that old of an inscription. It turns out to be from about the 6th century BCE, but it is drop-dead gorgeous. It is as elegant as any writing you've ever seen, and it's on a sarcophagus. And this guy, you know, was looking for, you know, whatever treasures he could find goes, you know, it's one of those, he goes into a cave and then he finds this incredible sarcophagus, which was far more valuable as a cultural artifact than anything material he could have discovered. He does a copy of it. The inscription gets sent around, you know, to various scholars in various places. It gets headline, you know, front page news and he negotiates its sale to, you know, not very legally, but it negotiates its sale to a Frenchman and they take the sarcophagus, you know, the, the guys on the, you know, the combination of the French sailors and the Phoenician workers are taking this sarcophagus on an ox cart and they've loaded it with flowers. And I, it's just like, you know, just because it was the first real physical evidence of the biblical past. Mm. It's like mind boggling. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to envision in my head what it would have been like to be there. Uh, but it is hard it is yeah and it was just you know again this um the excitement about the idea that that the bible could be proved through physical evidence because there it hadn't you know there hadn't been any it was just you know uh you can imagine how that sends ripple effects absolutely um, yeah yeah there are all sorts of things um (laughs) But in some ways, that almost is, is like a bit counter to kind of current thinking on the alphabet. You I mean, even what you've just been describing throughout this interview of kind of, we know what the general story is. It's here and here and it's adapted this way. And then this happens. And it's very much a story of um, 
change over time, really, um, and a lot of continuity, but not at any point kind of going, and it was fixed in stone, and therefore that is exactly what we have now, which is very much the implication, at least, of a whole bunch of biblical expectation, right? Um, so how then did um, the study of the alphabet and think discussions around that kind of transition from that biblical understanding in many ways? And obviously, it's an overgeneralization to call it that. But that idea that kind of the alphabet came down at some point or was developed at some point and then stayed that way to our understanding now of like, well, actually, there were a whole bunch of things and it took time, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, it's a great question because, you know, I mean, the idea that somehow, you know, all the letters of the alphabet are on the Decalogue and, you know, here's this gift to humanity um, from a divine source makes it seem as though, oh, okay, and then we've got this little, like, you know, rubber stamp set from A to Z, right? And it just circulates. And I think that's the way people even think about, you know, the Phoenician alphabet, which again is, you know, derived from the proto-Canaanite source. It's like, oh, so once we have the Phoenician alphabet, everybody gets a letter set. We just deliver it to Greece. We deliver it to Italy. We deliver it to, you know, Southern Spain. And, you know, people just kind of like, you know, use it and, you know, shift it a little, you know, they add a little, you know, local spice, right, and 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 tweak the letter forms. Um, but the, you know, the development of almost anything in human culture is far more complex than any linear story or mechanistic view. And so what's clear is that the, um, as the alphabet developed in the ancient Near East, there were, um, you know, it disseminated, you know, among, you know, tribes and cultural groups who took it on and then, you know, kept it stable. It's, it's amazing how stable it remains from, you know, about 1400 BCE onward. And again, the date of its, of, of alphabet, you know, emergence is still very much debated. It's one of the hot topics. Um, we can come back to that in a second, but when we talk about Wadi El Hole and the 1990s um, discoveries there in, on the continent of Africa and Egypt. But, you know, it, it's more likely that, you know, this emerges slowly and consolidates here and there. Um, the epigraphers who are expert epigraphers, like Benjamin Sass, whom I mentioned, Joseph Neva, uh, the late Joseph Neva, Israel Finkelstein, these are people who can look at two or three signs on a piece of um, evidence and be able to say, oh, if the tail of the gimel is, you know, if the tail of this is that long or the, you know, orientation of, you know, this letter is this way, then that means it had to have, you know, been derived from this source, this source, this source. So they're really looking at these little remains almost like DNA. You know, it's like, what, what's the derivative? What's the lineage? So across the ancient Near East, there'll be multiple, you know, sort of variants. Um, that's why we have Western, you know, Semitic epigraphy and, you know, Southern Semitic epigraphy and so forth. So it's a very highly nuanced and detailed study. Um, but once letter forms become stable um, and get disseminated by the Phoenicians, they are amazingly stable. I mean, we've had the same names of the letters, sequence of the letters, and what we call powers of the letters, that is the si the sounds they represent for, you know, m more than 3,000 years, like for 3,500 years. <laughs> it's wow. mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure that we uh, actually 
talk in a little bit of depth about um, some things that you've kind of mentioned a few times, but I think based on what I read in the book, uh, deserve to sort of have their own question um, around paleography and um, epigraphy um, and what these things are maybe for people who don't know and how they've um, really quite stunningly enhanced what is possible to study about the alphabet. Yeah. Um, I mean, and again, the people who do this work um, have a level of scholarship that I, for which I have deep and profound respect. Um, and the, the, the full development of modern um, paleography, which is a study of old writing, and epigraphy, which is generally considered to be inscriptions on stone, um, uh, really comes in the late 19th century. And a lot of it comes out of biblical archaeology, as it was then called. Um, and again, Mabillon, the 17th century figure I mentioned earlier, is considered the quote-unquote father of paleography. Um, but these are people who look at letter forms and like really look at letter forms. They look at every single detail. So again, I, I, I compare this to the natural sciences because there's an empiricism in it that's very strong. Um, and the techniques for doing uh, this work were codified by people like, um, um, I'll forget his first name, it's William Albright and Frank Moore Cross. Um, and these were, again, people who are putting into place systematic methods for how you understand um, what the letter forms are and how to read them. And so they were creators of methods as well as, you know, profound observers. And there's no substitute for training your eye. You have to learn to see differences among letter forms. And, you know, again, that um, simply is as, you know, specific to the field as connoisseurship is, you know, to art history, um, you know, forgery detection is. Um, it's, it's a visual training, um, but it's informed by the existing evidence. And so there's still a fair amount of controversy about dating um, and sequencing, um, even, you know, again, as, as sophisticated as the scholarship is. Well, in fact, that's where I'd like to turn to um, as we come towards the end of the interview, um, kind of a state of sort of where we're at now to some degree. And that's that's kind of twofold. First, what is the current sort of state or status of how the archaeological information and the textual information is matching up when it comes to the origins of the alphabet? Um, and then secondly, within people who study the alphabet, what are the debates and divisions there? Sure. Um, well, again, one of the interesting things is the persistence of certain texts as authoritative. And in the book, I talk about a woman named Lillian Jeffrey, who is a was a, a incredible classical scholar of um, you know ancient Greek scripts and she pulled together every single bit of physical evidence for the earliest of Greek inscriptions in order to look to see when did the alphabet arrive, where did it arrive, what might that tell us about its origin. And she uses Herodotus as her kind of text against which to check her own evidence. So again, that's very interesting to see that something like Herodotus um, continues to hold up. The question of the site of the origin of the alphabet is still very much up for debate. 
there are people who say, well, it must have been someplace on the southern coast of Turkey or up near, you know, uh, the very top end of modern, you know, sort of Syria and, and so forth, because it looks like it was developed by, you know, that the, that the Greek alphabet anyway derived from an exchange between Greek speakers who must have had a settlement and, um, you know, the practitioners of Semitic writing. So that's a big debate that's still unsettled. Um, you know, the dating of, um, uh, again, I don't want to stay on the, the Greek alphabet too long, but the, the dating of when the Greek alphabet really appears and starts to be put into use has also political implications. Um, if the alphabet came late to Greece, say the sixth century or the right BCE, then it implies that it was adopted by people who were already you know, sophisticated, had poetry, and were never barbaric. But if the Greek alphabet arrives early and is kind of like primitive and it has to evolve and evolves with other cultural formations, then it suggests that the Greeks had a kind of, you know, sort of less sophisticated period in their culture. So these kinds of things, you know, continue to be debated. But probably the evidence that rocked the um, alphabet uh, studies world the most was a discovery in 1994-95 um, by uh, the Darnells of um, uh, a, a, a set of inscriptions in an area called Wadi El Hole, and Wadi El Hole is sort of you know um, removed from the Egyptian coast. It's it's south um, into the continent of of Africa. It's in Egypt, um, west of the Sinai, so not in the Sinai Peninsula. And these are inscriptions um, that you know appear. Um, on rock faces, and they're clearly alphabetic. Um, they've been deciphered. The text has been deciphered in red. And so the question is, whoa, what's that doing there? Because nothing had been discovered um, outside of the Sinai and the ancient Near East. So, and the question of their dates. Are these 1900 to 1800 BCE? If so, that leaves a very long time period after that that's unaccounted for in terms of the development of the alphabet, 300, 400 years before we see it consolidating either in the Sinai or in the Levant. So these are debates that continue um, into the present because we don't have enough evidence. We just don't have enough physical evidence um, to be able to get the, the full picture. Um, so, so these are things that continue um, to uh, rely on future discoveries um, for the story to be, you know, for the history to be more uh, able to be accounted for. Yeah, more um, understood. For yeah, more yeah. explored. Well, that's really interesting um, that there's both so much that is known and yet so much to still discover. Um, that's a very exciting place to be. Um and so as my final question, essentially the personal version of that, um, this book is obviously the culmination of a massive amount of work. But as you've just highlighted for us, uh, there are lots of debates and discussions still ongoing in this field that you've contributed so much to. Um, so is there anything you're working on now or next? I'm working on all kinds of things. They're probably not going to be related to the alphabet, though. You know, it's, uh, I don't know, the alphabet, I love it so much. 
just, you know, there's so many, there's so many things I couldn't put into the book that um, one of the, you know, ideas I have is to, you know, figure out a way to make a supplement um, that would bring forward some of this evidence, um, the, the, the bibliographical evidence. Again, part of my impulse for doing this project was the kind of sadness I felt that this intellectual tradition, the multiple traditions within alphabet historiography or the, you know, the, the kind of meta history of this field were lost. People don't know this. People don't know who Thomas Astle is. They, they've never heard of Isaac Taylor. Nobody cares about, you know, Pantheus or, you know, anymore. And Claude Duré and Edmund Fry and, you know, figures whose scholarship, I think, um, absolutely deserves uh, recognition, respect, appreciation, and um, another look. So, you know, it's, uh, it's the, the study of the alphabet itself got divorced from its intellectual traditions in a way that's pretty unusual. I mean, you, you wouldn't study the history of anthropology. You wouldn't study anthropology without knowing it had a history. Right, you would know who Trober was. You know who Margaret Mead is. You know who, you know, Levi Strauss is. I mean, the the figures whose contributions shaped the field, and whose work we see as kind of important landmarks to reference, debate, and refute. But that didn't. The alphabet studies doesn't have this, and so for me, there was a kind of, you know deep sense of, of loss when I realized that, you know, I was taking these books out of the library in 1980, 88, 82, that hadn't been checked out in a hundred years. You know, it was like, I just thought, oh, well, here's my job. You know, <laughs> here's what I can do. So, so some of these works, like the, and as we were talking about the, the charts and these tables and Oh, there are so many things I would like to share, um, about which I would like to share my enthusiasm in greater detail. So wait and see. That may be coming. We'll see what that would look like. Amazing. <laughs> well, that's very exciting and a wonderful note to end on. Um, and while you are off exploring that, I will simply conclude with a reminder to the listeners that the book we've been discussing is titled Inventing the Alphabet, The Origins of Letters from Antiquity to the Present, just out from the University of Chicago Press. Dr. Johanna Drucker, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you.